Hey folks, Gerald Kirk here, and I'm excited to share that this season of the Higher Ground Society podcast is supported in part by the Alabama Humanities Alliance, a state affiliate of the National Endowment of the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast episode do not necessarily represent those of Alabama Humanities Alliance or the National Endowment for the Humanities. Now, let's get to the show. And welcome back to the second episode of our second season of the Higher Ground Society podcast. Um, this episode is special because we are in the month of October and we're celebrating or observing, however you want to put it, uh, LGBT History Month. And uh, to observe this moment, I brought one of my very, very good friends, kind of a mentor, a shiro of sorts, uh, uh, Megan Sullivan. Say hello, Megan. Hello, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. directions well. <laughs> you do, you do. I can appreciate that. Um, no, but uh, Megan's great, and uh, yeah, we're just going to dive right in. So, um, Megan, will you tell us who who are you? Well, I uh, am Megan Sullivan. My pronouns are she and her. I am one of the co-founders of the Invisible Histories Project, which is a nonprofit collecting, researching LGBTQ history in the Deep South. Uh, I am also adjunct faculty in women's and gender studies at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I am a doctoral candidate also at the University of Alabama Alabama at Birmingham uh, in the School of Education. And if I finish my dissertation like I'm supposed to, uh, we'll have that in the next couple of months. We'll have that that title added onto there. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Megan stays booked and busy. She's very busy lady. Um, But where are you, I want people to know, because we've talked about this, like you talked about this before, but I want people to know where your accent is from. What, what, where, where are you from originally? I am originally from the northeast corner of Alabama at Sand Mountain. It's the lower Appalachians uh, where Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee meet. So I'm from uh, Jackson and DeKalb County because the counties split the mountains of the Dutton and Sylvania areas are where my folks are from. I just learned... A new new thing. See, I'm glad I asked you this. I, I always it always happens. I don't know much about that region of the state, um, except for that it's gorgeous. And uh, but yeah, so just I like to for people to get an idea of where these voices are coming from and like what their connections to the state are. So thank you for sharing all of that. Um, yeah, people people think that my accent is very thick. Uh, it isn't though comparatively I actually worked really really hard I'm sure we'll get into it at some point and whenever I was in college in Tuscaloosa because Tuscaloosa has like this weird accent uh, for people who are from there because they're so influenced by the size of the university and the University of Alabama is like this behemoth and so there's so many folks there that they have this very very weird accent there's touches of like that old south that kind of genteel (laughs) yeah Uh, and then there's a little bit of that redneck you know going on there as well (laughs) plus all the influences of different cultures and you know different ways of speaking and so the people there have an, an odd accent and I remember ordering sprites whenever I would go out and or anything with an eye in it and and 
not saying Sprite then, but being like Sprite, <laughs> get a Sprite. <laughs> and I had never really been aware of my own accent. And then I got down there and folks were like, what? A what? <laughs> what are you even saying? Yeah. And I realized, oh, I've got a hillbilly accent. And so I worked really really hard uh sounding like an absolute ass trying to like elongate <laughs> my words and re- re- emphasize my vowels and pronounce yeah. everything uh and i hate that i i i washed it out a lot because i've really lost a lot of the things that i said naturally yeah. that i no longer use and i try to bring them back but it's just it's not the same um but yeah this is a watered down version of yeah how I used to be. Well, by all means, <laughs> the safe space, we might see witness the rebirth of the, the accent on this podcast because I love it. Like, I mean, it is what it is. I think it's, 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 it's who you are. So by all means. Well, drink. I mean, I am drinking water, but if it was something a little bit stronger, we probably would <laughs> hear it come out quite a bit. I can't help it at that point. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Well, let's, let's talk about, um, so you, you're with Invisible Histories Project. So tell us, you kind of gave us an overview, but tell us like some of the things that you guys do, the, the three of you now, but it was just two of you guys, like what just, yeah, just to tell us, give us a history of the Histories Project. <laughs> so the Invisible Histories Project, we're a nonprofit, like I said, based in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And what we do primarily is research, locate, and then work with different institutions in order to preserve uh, LGBTQ history in the deep south so Alabama Mississippi Georgia and then we're moving into the Florida panhandle and we really act as an intermediary between institutions like universities libraries museums and archives and then everyday folks LGBTQ people and organizations there's a lot of distrust within the community for those institutions a lot of it earned Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we try to vet institutions create relationships with them and create relationships with the community in order to bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. We also run Queer History South, Mm -hmm. which is a network of folks who are doing work within the South around LGBTQ history and archiving. And we meet uh, almost every two years for a conference. The next one is going to be in February in Dallas, Texas. And we really talk about best practices and issues within doing kind of queer and, and trans Southern history work. Like yeah. what do we need? Where can we go? What are our problems and how can we fix them? Yeah. So we're involved in a lot of things. And yeah, we are now at three people. Uh, it was originally founded by myself and my friend and co-founder, Josh Burford. Uh, he had been working in Charlotte, North Carolina. We knew each other from way back when we were both at UA, but he'd been working in Charlotte, North Carolina, doing some archiving work in the city with UNC Charlotte. Uh, And he came down to Birmingham. I was working at UAB at the time as the UAB gay, (laughs) which is what I called myself. I was doing LGBTQ services uh, for the, for the entirety of the, the beast that is UAB. But, uh, we, he was at a conference that we were hosting and he was talking about the work that he was doing there. And I was like, Hey, could we do this here? And he's like, I would love to do this here. Cause he's also, he's from Anniston, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And so that was in 2015. We started planning. We started doing virtual meetings before zoom was a thing. So we were Skyping it out. Nice. Uh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You remember Scott? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not as efficient as Zoom is, a lot of broken conversations, but <laughs> we were we were planning, we were coming up with stuff, and in 2016, we got our 501c3 status and really started 
planning and and figuring out what this might look like. Originally, we were thinking just about doing Alabama. Mm -hmm. We're out reaching to people, talking to particularly libraries and universities. And at that time, no one was really interested Mm -hmm. uh, in, in early 2016, late 2015. And then in 2016, uh that which shall not be named (laughs) happens and things change people's ideas change and their kind of sense of urgency around marginalized communities shifts are shifting and so folks realize that you know it's not all people but a lot of people that we were working with i think realize that you can't just be not for something you have or in order to be like an, an ally or an advocate, you have to really be active in that. Like you can't just be not homophobic. You have <laughs> right. to be active in something to help the community, to connect with the community, right? To challenge what's happening. And so yeah. people were very interested and we worked really hard um, to get everything going. And then we got an Andrew Mellon grant, which helped us you know, quit our jobs that we were doing, start doing this work full time. And now we are on our second Andrew Mellon grant, which we just got in March uh, and are able to have Josh and I, and then we just hired a new assistant director, Dawn Betts Green, and she's going to help us do a lot of cool stuff. So, Um, yeah. Yeah. So like, so I, I, yeah, I guess my introduction to you was at the the David Matthews Center's well, I forget what they call it, but it's like symposium type situation or civic some, some C- civic leadership or something like that institute yeah. or yeah symposium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and Megan was this firecracker uh, of a panelist who just I just thought was incredible, and I wanted to be her friend for sure then. But we wound up in working together when I was at the Alabama Humanities Foundation, and it just blossomed. Like you guys are so open and, and collaborative and, and, and just welcoming. And so I think I took advantage of that <laughs> and you will not get rid of me now because of you let that door open. And, uh, but I was just so impressed with the work that you guys were doing and the truth to power that you spoke on that panel. I'll never forget that. It was a really good panel. Um, and it wasn't even necessarily about queer history. It was, I think it was like a racial history or a racial justice conversation, if I'm not mistaken. It it was just good stuff all around. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't even remember what I said on that panel. I know that at some point I was hollering at people, just you, generally, not anyone specific. And you cussed but, a little, which I loved. So. Oh, did I? Well, I mean, that's why I don't remember. That's not remarkable. I, I have a very foul mouth. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to behave a little, but also, do you have, you, you have a beeper? Because I hope you do. I hope you're going to beep, beep. Oh, no, we're, right, it's, it's, it's all honesty here. It's, it's, oh, but it's I kind of like. I kind of like being beeped, so maybe just add them, even if I don't okay. say anything. Just That's be like, plan. beep, beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> also, I don't know if you've said, but you're very involved in IHP. I did not say, but I try. Um, yeah, Higher Ground Society and, 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 and Invisible History Project are, are good friends, I think. But I'm also a board member, um, one of the first board members of the organization. And uh, definitely the first to have moved out of the state and kind of <laughs> be like a out of state person and I do what I can when I can whenever you guys need something I'm always uh open to trying so yeah you got me (laughs) yeah I mean I just I just want to you know say that you moving is part of the IHP agenda 
nice. is our tentacles stretching out. So let me just let me live in that space. For sure. Yeah. So you guys never know when another tentacle might be in your estate. So watch out. Oh, you know what? I've accidentally seen that video. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness oh by the way this is the long time coming megan and i've often talked about like having our own podcast that's not even as structured as this we just we just feel like people should listen to us talk because we do have some pretty awesome conversations i must say so yeah we just want to sit around and be judgmental i think that's what we say right <laughs> yeah. but like detach so there's no consequences absolutely absolutely yeah. isn't that like the the dream these days yeah. what everybody thinks that they're doing but no they're there are consequences folks there are yes, <laughs> <much> so. <laughs> but we'll figure that out so um uh high ground society podcast unwritten or whatever coming to you later i don't know whatever (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah invisible history project you guys are doing queer history in the deep south tell us about the condition of queer history in alabama specifically like are there people teaching this in schools that i don't know about or 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 what What what's going on well i mean for teaching uh it is better than it was five years ago yeah. Um, so that is also, good. Is that, that bars or that's still just not like that's college. higher ed mostly. So okay. one of the, the issues with um, Alabama and you know queer history is the legacy of no promo homo laws. So laws that ban the teaching of inclusive sex ed, but also positive mentions of queerness, transness mm-hmm. um, of people and places and incorporating them into curriculum in really any subject. It was really originally around sex ed and um, and those sort of health outreaches, but in any subject it, it, it applies to. And then of course, a lot of, you know, homophobic administrations in areas where they might you might have a teacher that would want to do it but it's not part of the curriculum and I won't get into the the thing about how restricted and horrible things like standardized testing are where there can't be you know the incorporation of local history even Mm -hmm. if you wanted to there's so many things going to on teachers right now and there are no supports and underpaid understaffed I mean being thrown to the COVID Mm -hmm. gods basically to (laughs) you know for whatever may happen and so you know when we talk about higher ed or, or K-12, we oftentimes want to say, well, why aren't there, isn't there gay history in here? And yes, we should be saying that. How do we put gay history, queer history, trans history, particularly local history into our schools, but also what are all the other factors that go into that? Because yeah. if we're just saying, well, okay, we're going to do a section on this one event that happened. Well, then we're, it's the Harvey Milk problem or the Stonewall problem. Where there's just right. one inclusion in the textbook and that, check boxes for all of the things right we we've, we've covered it we've got it we can move on instead of really talking about some of the systemic issues that together are creating uh, inequity mm-hmm. in access and knowledge within our school systems i mean alabama is one of the worst in the country when it comes to education mm-hmm. chronically yeah. and that doesn't mean that there aren't brilliant people here and there aren't fantastic teachers doing wonderful work with their structural issues that all of us need to kind of rally together around and saying that there are a lot of people suffering mm-hmm. because of these these outdated ways of thinking about knowledge and education and how we treat young people and how yeah. we baby 
young people and not, you know, not letting them be who they are and explore themselves and give them this knowledge to, to navigate who they are in healthy ways, you know? And so we are living in that, but on the higher ed spectrum, a lot of things are, are happening. We're working very closely almost every semester with Auburn and the University of Alabama yeah. uh, to have classes, to have coursework. We have interns that work in the archives. They work with donors. They help us with exhibits. We have interns this year from UAB mm-hmm. who are going to be doing some exhibiting work. It's some digitization work with us. We have entire classes going through publications. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so many things that we're do- oh, doing oral histories with folks. Yes. I mean, so many things that are happening on the higher ed level and that is growing we're getting more faculty reaching out to us more students we regularly get students being like hey i'm doing a paper in fact today i answered an email saying hey i pulled this thing from your website and i got this picture i'm going to use it in my paper is that okay i was like yes send us the paper that sounds amazing um and and so we are seeing it growing you know queer southern history is very new field academically speaking and so there's a lot of interest in it and a lot of of movement but it is slow because higher ed is so painfully slow generally speaking yeah yeah, i mean it is it is getting better there is a huge lack you know there's definitely a lot of improvements that we need to do but it's it's inching there yeah That sounds like a, the true, try to true Alabama story. I mean, it, it, Alabama is always a place of people. I don't think people will realize for, for where things are happening. Um, it's just so far under the radar. I just think this is one of the, one of those things, uh, which I think, which is why I love the name of your organization, Invisible Histories Project. It's so, I mean, it's very like direct and to the point, but I think it's so brilliant because it is, it's like right there. We just got to lift the veil right like you know like it's often literally there right it's been in archives Mm -hmm. and it's been mislabeled or Mm -hmm. purposefully hidden because Mm -hmm. the person was maybe a president of of a very conservative university and Mm -hmm. people didn't need to know that he had a huge you know gay porn collection <laughs> ah. so that had to be hidden or you know like there's so or our family you know one of the yeah. things that big issue is when folks pass particularly during the AIDS epidemic when when someone passed with AIDS a lot of times all of their items were burned they burned. were destroyed there were entire companies that would come in and just uh, destroy everything in the home yeah. um, because they wrongly thought that that was how that you took care of it right that you had to contain everything mm-hmm. but we also have family who still have biological family have rights to folks when they pass and particularly mm-hmm. before marriage uh, equality passed then when, when someone would would pass away then people the biological family would be able to come in and take possession of items mm-hmm. and oftentimes their gender or sexual identity was obliterated it was purposefully you know hidden or gotten rid of so there's there's a lot of layers about why we can't find things it's not that it's not there it's that it's been purposefully or accidentally kind of hidden and so we're working with students in all of the states that we're in to do surveys of current holdings Mm -hmm. so as we're bringing things in new collections we're also seeing what's already there and we're working with our partners we're actually planning some meetings in the next couple of months Mm -hmm. to have our partners go through and survey their 
collections and really think like, do you have hidden queer collections? What are the things you should be looking for? And then how can we get them properly identified? And we'll be working on a database and kind of boring, you know, technical things there, but it'll be really fun because it'll have lots of identities that you can look for some some real in-depth keywords. So hopefully you'll be able to find all the goodies that you're looking for way easier than driving around the entirety of the country and just checking (laughs) archives yourself. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So tremendous work, very important work. And I love, I love it. I'm so glad that you guys exist. Um, Because it's, it was one of those things I was like, yeah, this is important. I personally believe it was important, but it was just in the back of my mind, but it's so refreshing to hear that somebody's out there doing this work. So kudos to y'all. And uh, by all means, if you need to, if you'd like to support Invisible Histories Project, please visit their website and go hit that donate button. Uh, <laughs> that was Thank not you a- for doing that shameless plug for me. Because <laughs> then it's like shameless anymore. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, like that shoe did not prompt me to do that. I just believe in it so much that I think that you all should be throwing money at them. Uh, <laughs> so- I mean, literally, you could throw money at me when I was walking down the street. I wouldn't, I'd be okay with it. I mean, <laughs> Thank you and keep walking. <laughs> That's weird. Okay, great. Let's go. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting. So I love the fact that we're, so just like high ground society, we're focused on work, creatives and thinkers who are in the state of Alabama. You guys are very much so focused on Southern, his, queer Southern history. What makes queer Southern history stand out from other history, like queer histories like around the country or the world? Is there any difference or anything or... Well, I mean, you know, there is and there isn't, of course, always. But in in the ways in which it might be different is the rurality, how rural the South is, although the Midwest is actually more rural than the South. We don't necessarily think about it that way. Um, And, you know, the grassroots way in which folks communicated with each other and, and organized, it hasn't necessarily been as, you know, to the national attention level as maybe some other movements have been. There's been chronic lacks of funding, which I'm going to talk about uh, so much. I have a feeling because that's one of the things (laughs) I do a lot of. Uh, And so, yes, there are definitely issues, but then there's not a difference because, you know, the South has the highest percentage of LGBTQ people living. 33% of all queer and trans folks in the entire U.S., live in the South. So huge numbers and a significant percent, almost has like 40 to 50, not quite half of those are people of color. And so a huge diverse population with a very rich history and a rich community tradition. And so the South to me and the way it's different is that it immediately, everything that we find bucks a stereotype. Mm. It takes our notions of the South that are not just national, they're international Mm. and says, you, this is not right. Your preconceived notions of me are wrong. And I don't have to prove myself based off your metrics. A really good example of not that, but of of how the South is kind of perceived regardless of where you go. I remember um, in 2000, I went with a uh, my French trip, my French group at school. By the way, I don't speak a lick, so don't <laughs> ask. I ain't going to do it. We went to England and France um, for a school trip. And, you know, I've been working, by the way, on the in the potato field and as a tour guide in a cave. So, <laughs> and I raised watermelons from my granddaddy uh, to, to raise to uh to raise money for that so i go to to london and we're going in the london dungeon i'm it's like i'm living my best life because i'm super into weird like morbid creepy shit like that (laughs) and 
but the ride breaks and we have to get out and I'm very sad we don't get a chance to go back so that's like on my list of things to do but we're coming out and the the little gift shop is just packed with people because the ride's broken everybody's kind of getting out um of it and as we come out some british man <laughs> says something to me and i'm not going to do the accent although i'm very tempted to Please do. Um, oh i can't i have to practice <laughs> and i'd also probably have to do a couple shots but the he says something to me about would i like a photo but i don't hear a damn word he says i don't know there's so many people i'm not i'm actually a little hard of hearing and so he says it and i go huh <laughs> and he goes back at me he goes huh what part of the south are you <laughs> or something like that that's not oh, doing it just no. and like the entirety because i've gotten a little separated from my group at this point i just feel like this wind on my face <laughs> the entirety of the gift shop turns and looks at me and then people start saying to me say this say that and i'm like well, oh. what is happening here well yeah. i mean I be i've become the sideshow in the <laughs> london dungeon i have become the exhibit in this place about torture and disease <laughs> so you know i eventually got out of there whatever i didn't get my picture uh which is sad <laughs> but <laughs> but you know like that perception is yeah. very rooted in what the south is and mm -hmm. and and so it's a signifier like our accents and where we when we say where we're from is a signifier of all of these stereotypes about yeah being 20 years behind, you know, not being progressive, being hyper-religious, like mm -hmm. all of these things about us that are assumptions based off of where we grew up and, and, you know, about what we can and can't do. And so every time we find these pieces of history, it says that's wrong. Yeah. And not only does it, it, does it challenge other people's notions of who we are but it uplifts us further like it mm -hmm. gives us that platform that we've been missing because these things have been oral traditions a lot of times or they've just been like oh well I didn't think that was that important why would you want that you know southern mm -hmm. folks t do tend to be a little like oh you know it's not a big deal you know real passive and right. um, polite and all that not everybody but you know, in the work that we do, a lot of times we're a little bit more sit back and enjoy about it and, and reminisce, but not necessarily put it in a state archive, right? Right, right. Um, yeah. And so working with folks to let them know that they're not just like communally important, they're historical beings. Like right. your work is part of the annals of history. Like it is significant and will rewrite the entirety of our existence as u.s citizens like it is it matters on that scale and mm -hmm. so that's really cool to work with folks but it's also you know hard to to get folks to realize because i think it you know it is a bit that's you know a take back whenever you think oh my life is that significant like yeah, yeah. you know the work that i do matters even though you know it matters it matters on a bigger scale so i think i went down like a total rabbit hole right there no but. it's so glad you said that because i definitely think that's one of the things is we are definitely working against all the stereotypes that like you said the entire world puts on not just alabama but the entire south um and i and we i think maybe we have even internalized some of those stereotypes like you, oh yes right you know and we some of it we take pride in some of them sometimes and um, but I mean, even for me as a queer person coming of age, it's just like, 
I didn't think that the South was a place that was quote unquote safe for me or a place that I could thrive. But since I've gotten older, since I've worked with you guys, I've seen the complete opposite. I've learned that I've even read articles about you know, like whole queer communities in the rural parts of that state of Alabama just chilling, love it, living and loving. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. ain't that the life? Like, <laughs> there is hope, <laughs> you know? So um, I'm so glad you said that. It, 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 it is, we are, um, it's, it's a kind of like a defiance against a lot of different things going on there. Yeah, and we we need that. One of the the biggest things, and I saw this in higher ed too, but I really see it in the nonprofit world and I understand it, but is this reliance on a deficit model to get funding and support and attention? So, you know, we talk so much about how what the statistics are, what does poverty look like, what does violence look like? you know, how bad is the South? Like, let's talk about the lack of protections and all that. And we need to talk about those things. We need to remedy those things. We need to work and organize around them. But when that's the only thing that we can do is having these sad gay babies talk about how awful their life is. And it's in no context around all of the elders who've come before us, all the work that is and has been done. When that's all we get, did we internalize that? And so not only do we project that out to other people in order to get their money, which fine, but then those are the only narratives we're hearing. And so we become that lack. We become, oh yes, you must leave. I must go to California. I must go to New York in order to not just thrive, but survive. Mm-hmm. And that's a bold-faced lie because we have always created those communities and those ways of being here in our own spaces. And not only does it you know, not give hope and a foundation for young folks, but it's a total disrespect and disregard to all of the people who have come before us and the people out there hauling ass to do the work that they do. Yeah. Like you can't just keep saying these narratives about how terrible it is without talking about the bigger context of why right our gerrymandering our 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 systems of capitalism and Mm -hmm. and the way in which our 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 political systems are set up like all of that influences this but if we say that beings as a community as queer community that we're lacking then we always will be because we can't envision anything else and we don't have to Like we can see something better. We can lean into joy. We can lean into community and love and these radical ideas that we used to have about what it meant to be both queer and Southern because they inform each other. And so they don't have to be separate and they don't have to be sad is really what I want to push out there. For sure. And I think we're, we're kind of, we're, and not only are we doing that in the South, realizing that and pushing that, I think the rest of the world is catching on to that wave as well. And that's that's heartening. So I'm excited to see what the work looks like moving forward, um, yeah. both here in Alabama and and, and abroad. Uh, so I want to shift to talk about some more of the work that you've done. We have talked several times, and just about you know uh, you know informally and also you know through work and stuff about the different things that you do uh, <laughs> through the organization. I want to just throw another shout out here. I was actually home down in the Mobile area last weekend. And I just happened to come across this Invisible Histories collaboration exhibit at the Alabama Contemporary Arts Center. It's called Invisible Histories. Unfortunately, it has ended uh, by the time this the show will air. But that was a really cool experience to, to see, you know, some of our, our friends, Jackie Clay and Bo McGuire, there who kind of facilitate this incredible story, this narrative of being queer in, in the Mobile area. 
That was awesome. So that's just one example. You don't have to talk about that. But like, so what is one of, tell me what's your favorite story from the work that you've done so far is. Because you got, a, you got a ton. A ton. Yeah. I mean, and, and we are, you know, we do, we are working with other people to do exhibits and research projects, but we have some exhibits and some programs that we're going to have uh, coming out. We've got a timeline of Birmingham. Uh, LGBTQ community in Birmingham that we're going to be doing, looking through the Alabama Forum, which was a publication in Alabama. Um, they'll be out in May of 2022. And then we've got another big one I can't announce yet that we're working on that will come out. So follow us on social media is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Uh, and- yeah. Yeah. But so my one of my favorite things, and it's hard to do this, it's <laughs> um, whenever you know, ask, but I'm, I'm, I know we're talking a lot about Alabama, but I'm, I'm a softy for Mississippi. Sure. Yeah. That's like actually I, And you know, like it's because we're sibling states, right? And yeah. we're always like, who's going to be 49? Who's going to be 50? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, which one of us is going to be there? Is, is it going to be Mississippi saying, thank God for Alabama or the vice versa, right. Right? right? And so I, I, I love Mississippi because, you know, there's not a lot of, urban areas they're very small the the towns that are there are very small it's it's very difficult to travel in Mississippi because there's you know the roads aren't super connected and you have to it takes a lot longer and it's very very rural and the parts of Mississippi are so different like everywhere you go it feels like you're in a a little bit of a different state but there is a connection too so I, I really love Mississippi um they have amazing tea i'm gonna tell you that if you're ever in mississippi get you some tea like sweet oh. tea or like yes okay well, so i don't i don't actually i listen i don't want to say this publicly i don't i can't have sugar so i don't drink sweet tea anymore no, that's but it's delicious i mean if you're not from the south maybe don't start out with mississippi sweet tea maybe ease yourself into it drink yeah. some like kentucky sweet tea and then like work your way down um because <laughs> you, you you might you might go into a coma immediately yeah, yeah. Uh, but but anyway so i love things about mississippi and what i'm kind of obsessed with right now i mean there's so many things but is the mississippi gay alliance and so what the gay alliance was and it, it starts in 1973 and it is really a political and social group that starts up in order to provide information, education, and other types of supports for mostly gay folk, gay men, also lesbian women in Mississippi. And the thing that's really cool about them is they're doing statewide work. When we look at a lot of these organizations, even in, you know, more like quote progressive states, they're really doing localized city-based work. Well, the Mississippi Gay Alliance, which in 1986 becomes the Mississippi Gay and Lesbian Alliance, they are they have chapters throughout the entire state, all the way down from the the Gulf up to Tennessee. So they have multiple chapters that are actively doing things, actively communicating with each other. They have a newsletter that they're putting out, um, and they're doing a lot of kind of like significant work. I mean, eventually everything in in all areas of LGBTQ efforts goes towards AIDS work in the eighties, but early on they're organizing, they're helping people get 501c3 statuses. They're creating the metropolitan community church. They're doing softball leagues. You know, there's so many things that they're 
doing having having events, doing you know, fundraisers, uh, just even having places for folks to come out and be who they are and connect mm-hmm. with each other. Uh, and so I, that's one of the things I'm, I'm the most excited about. We know a little bit about the Mississippi Gay Alliance because we've digitized some of their early newsletters and some of the papers that they put out. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the biggest collection of Mississippi history related to the Mississippi Gay Alliance is actually in California in an archive. And okay. yes, and so we are working to get there and um, see what's in it because I don't think it has ever been accessed or oh, looked at okay. ever. Uh, and it's been there for quite a while and there are dozens of boxes. And so we're hopefully soon we'll be able to do a little bit of a research trip and see what's all in those boxes because a huge amount of Mississippi history will will be there. And, and that's one of the things that I'm going to go on tangent on just a little bit, but we really focus on keeping materials local. Right. And I and I do see the, the the side of having a centralized, easy to access in a large city place that has a lot of stuff where you come in and do a lot of research all at once. But what ends up often happening is these more popular, larger archives end up getting these materials because people don't know where they should go. They've heard of this or they've come in maybe and purchased um, an archival, part of an archival collection. Mm -hmm. And then they end up going away. And a lot of times we go in and we look at the usage logs and there's nobody. Mm. You know, one of Josh or I will be one of the first people to to look at it. And sometimes they're not completely processed, which sometimes is a staffing issue. Yeah. And so we really don't know what's there. And so they're leaving the communities that they matter the most to. I mean, if you're in Mississippi, you're more likely to go through those boxes than if you're in California. Sure. And so keeping things local has been a real big priority for us. And so when it's possible, we really do try to keep the materials in the communities that produce them. Right. It's kind of like the, that same situation we have, like, throughout history, you have, like, countries like the UK or France or Germany will be going, doing their little colonial, imperialist little thing. They take all the stuff out of those other countries, and they have them all put up in their museum, and you're just like, okay, this is cute, but maybe this belongs in Egypt, where you stole this from. That's what that reminds me of, kind of, and, and that same, the same sentiment, like, yeah, it, it definitely would be better to be able to connect with those materials on the ground where those things were happening, right? It's a different connection for sure. I mean, it, it definitely it's, it's removing, and I'm not I'm I'm not going to say that you know that collection being in California is the same level of historical colonizing sure. <laughs> that, that all of the museums in London and France that stole from people of color yeah, in the yeah, Middle yeah. East and, and Africa uh, and took all of their cultural heritage and put it in a box. Yeah. Uh, but there is definitely something about like voyeurism and value that we yeah. do need to integrate, you know, interrogate a little bit more. And like, and I think archives really need to decide what their ethical what their ethical call is here. Like, is it usage or is it preservation? And if it's just holding stuff in a box, when does that become hoarding for hoarding's sake? (laughs) And what is the purpose of, because a piece of paper is just a piece of paper until we put value on it, right? And so, you know, I'm not not trying to make all our archivist uh, partners nervous. (laughs) I definitely am invested in the preservation of materials, but I would rather something be used a thousand times, empower a hundred people and turn to dust 
than sit in a box forever and not be used. Yeah, for sure. Love that. Thank you. (laughs) No, it's very, that's very important to hear and understand. It's, I think it's a very good conversation going forward. Oh, wait, so far. Um, And it's only going to get better. I just want to ask you one other, it's kind of a, a similar question. Um, who is your favorite LGBT historical figure? So it's a tie, I okay. think, between Alter Lord and Dorothy Allison. Nice. Uh, only one of which is Southern, which is Dorothy Allison. Um, Alter Lord, I, I, I found both. So my master's degree is in uh, women and gender studies. And I found Audre Lord and Dorothy Allison both when I was in my master's program and read them and really connected to them. And but I think the most significant thing for Audre Lord, you know, she's a, a poet and a writer and just really brilliant is the cancer journals. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I've been diagnosed with a chronic illness recently. And so I've been revisiting uh, Mm. some of that work that I haven't read for a really long time. And there's this moment in the book where she's talking about sitting, she's had a double mastectomy and she's sitting in the waiting room or somewhere with the the medical facility. And she's been told that she needs to have like um, some sort of appearance of breast that the, you know, she can't be in that facility with her clearly surgery scarred flat chest because it might uh, offend or upset some of the other patients there wow. or something like that. And as she's sitting there, she's looking up at the television and I cannot remember which political figure it was, but there was a political figure from I don't remember what country on there talking about it. And it was really just like celebrating his, you know, role as like this war hero and all that stuff. And he's got a patch over his eye. Mm. And she's talking about how that becomes like this symbol of like masculinity and surviving mm. and leadership. Mm-hmm. Whereas hers is a symbol of shame and torment and a communal betrayal almost. Mm-hmm. And I, I that, that way in which she thinks about like the racialized and gendered aspects of ability and bodies it's really cool and i won't get too like heady and deep into that but you know that's that's really been amazing for me to think about she also talks a lot about giving voice you know your silence will not protect you yes which is one of her more famous uh, pieces and and talking about reclamation radical reclamation of voice you know Mm -hmm. one that isn't about just saying whatever the hell you want and being Mm -hmm. an ass but about like (laughs) taking up space particularly for marginalized people and then also recognizing in the ways in which our own voices marginalize others and and so that was really cool and that really feeds into a lot of the work that I do uh, particularly around trying to claim my own identities but realizing that I'm a white lady a cis lady and like what that means in particular spaces and how I need to check my own self and be open to being checked uh, and then Dorothy Allison, of course, is, you know, she wrote Bastard of Carolina, but she also wrote my two favorites, which are Trash and Skin. And she really helped me, and Dolly Parton, um, <laughs> be more comfortable being like unapologetically Southern. Yeah. And she really situates this idea of being unapologetically Southern and unapologetically queer, that they both are consistently informing each other. Um, and so... Yeah, I love her and I love her writing and I I still because I teach and I still am making my students read Audre Lord and Dorothy Allison. Nice. Like I, I'm trying to update everything else and get some newer stuff, but I'm like, y'all go read Dorothy Allison and oh, Audre Lord. 
Yeah. Y'all gonna rate them. Y'all gonna rate them more than once. <laughs> <laughs> They're foundational for sure. You can't, that's like, yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for sharing that because I'm not too, too familiar with Dorothy Allison, but Audre Lorde for sure. And it, it makes sense, like what you just said and the things that they wrote, wrote about. Like that's often, I mean, we have a lot of queer folks that we have that are making history now, but the people who put up with the crap of pre, you know, whatever, pre- pride i guess i don't know <laughs> like they they got a lot of bloody good stuff and that's both a play on our story earlier but also like literally like they've been through some crap that we yeah. stand to this that we just stand to listen to and learn from so well and the yeah. thing that i love about them is Audra and dorothy were both in the sex wars uh of the feminist movement in yeah. the second wave uh, that which ways whatever but they <laughs> um you know they were there was this huge movement uh, to keep lesbians and people who were into like kinky sex out of feminist spaces. You know, that porn was inherently bad and traumatizing for women and that, you know, lesbians shouldn't be in these, these straight feminist spaces. Mm -hmm. And, and they were some of the champions of thinking differently about sexuality and how we talk about sexuality. And I think that that is really lost in the queer movement. For sure. Yeah. And because when we're talking about gender and sexuality, we are talking about bodies. Right. We are talking about sex and interactions and anatomy. And we're talking about all of those things. We're talking about a lot of other things too, but we have been so hard to be apologetic and to be like, no, this is an identity. Let me distance itself from the behaviors or the bodies or the whatever that we have gotten away from some of those earlier fights mm -hmm. to claim space as sexual mm -hmm. beings, as gender deviants, as pushing all these boundaries and not being, you know, afraid of doing so. And we have internalized that message as well. And so I do look back to a lot of the folks, you know, in, in, in that time period that were really coming out and saying, hey, this is the stance that I'm going to take. I'm not willing to negotiate on these in order to have a seat at the table. It, I don't want that table. That's yeah. not for me. So I don't know. We can learn a lot from these folks. And I think that we should lean more into our history and also some of these people that were writing really approachable theories back in the day, too, that we've kind of fluttered away from. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I'm now I feel like so many rants. No, no, no. But this is so great, and I'm gonna go back and follow up on some of these folks. I, I've had Audre Lorde on my reading list for forever. I like go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. She hasn't done any fiction. I I need the escape for fiction. <laughs> so, but I want to make her a priority for sure. Um, so, we're kind of in the same vein, which we were just talking about. What is a barrier to archiving and teaching queer history, and how might we overcome those? So, I mean, for archiving, I think it is, there, there's lots of issues, you know, the trust issue with not having people trusting institutions, not having institutions prioritizing queer collections and teaching their structural issues that we've talked about with like our politics and who can and can't talk about queer and trans folks and in what ways can we talk about them. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the biggest things is funding. We need resources and funding for people here. Yeah. We don't need your national organization to Oof. come in and set up a chapter Oof. in our rural areas to do services that we've been doing with nothing. Yeah. 
What we need is for you to trust and invest in community leaders that are already doing the work. And like, I write a lot of grants. They're hard as hell. And I'm super (laughs) grateful to all of our grant, you know, the people who give us grants and our supporters, but like you can spend months writing a grant, putting everything you've gotten into it, even as a skilled grant writer, you put all that labor in and then not get that money. Yeah. Right. So we're putting all of this excessive labor to get these funds and then these giant reports and then making them go through hoops. And it's a lot harder to to get that kind of one knowledge because you're really running a business. We talk about nonprofits like they're not businesses, but they are. Yeah. And people don't inherently have those skills. And so to do your taxes, to you know, to pay your taxes, to to do all of this kind of nitty gritty stuff. And so I think that what would be really helpful is operational supports for on the groundwork for one mm-hmm. uh, with less strings attached, mm-hmm. right? So we're going to, we are going to pay for salaries. We are going to pay for your accountant. We're going to pay for your new computer, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But then a big one for the humanities, particularly of the work that we do is we need to start thinking about a lot of the humanities work as direct service. Because when there's a scarcity or supposed scarcity in something like a pandemic, then that competition intensifies. And so we say, instead of giving to humanities who are doing this kind of frou-frou work, that we're going to give to people who are doing more direct services, more healthcare services, more homeless services, things where we that we call direct services and are very, very important. The material realities of human beings are important and very pressing. And also, I think that collecting our own history, preserving our own stories is also a direct service because all of this work keeps happening. All these public health models keep being invented and reinvented with zero historical context. Mm -hmm. If people were taking care of people in the beginning of the AIDS epidemic with no local, state, or federal support and a lot of things against them, and they were taking care of each other, why are we not looking back to those as models? Why are we not looking at the patient records? Why are we not looking at the board meeting notes? Like, why is that not an integral part of all of our direct service efforts now? And it isn't. It just flat out isn't. And part of that is because it doesn't exist. So we need money. We need money into the humanities. We need money into people who are in the community to research their own things because the South is sexy now. And if we're not careful, folks are going to come in and they're going to tell us how they think it is. They're going to be taking our stories and making them their own. And we have to make sure we get ahead of that. Yeah. Kind of on the flip side of that whole stereotypes thing where we're working against, you know, like there are people do see stereotypes and they don't necessarily trust us to do all the work that we've been doing, like you said, for years and years and years. On the flip side of that, um, we, they also like us <laughs> a lot. They see how sexy we are. They see the, the benefit. And they see the wealth of, of knowledge, of creativity and, you know, history. And it's just time for people to be good stewards of that and just, you know, enable not. Yeah, just basically what you said. I see, I see it. I get it, and I'm just I co-sign 100. Like I think it's it's really frustrating to think about, but I think it'll I think it'll get there eventually. I think more and more people are listening and they're 
opens the idea, hopefully, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, everybody wants a possum and a piece of cornbread right now, anyways. It's out of here. What? I mean, it's like so popular. Everywhere you look, there's a damn possum. Uh, so you know, it's just, there's so much about the South that people are really finding appealing. There's this like move to be like rural and like this faux poverty that people are having where they have a lot of resources, but they want to go live in a trailer, yeah. you know, and, and like it's, that's like something trendy and TikToky now. Um, and so, or bloggy or whatever people are doing. And, and I do think that there, there is a lot of movement in that, but just like we talked about like queer movements being like asexualized and removed from the, you know, the, the whole purpose of discrimination to begin with it. We, we also see that in like this Southern kind of reclamation that we need to be careful about as well and not let ourselves we need to be accountable to our problems but also we need to be telling our own stories and those stories need to be representative of people who are here absolutely and told by them and told by them yes that's my favorite part because i mean (laughs) it's so much more richer to hear somebody tell their own story which is why i have people introduce themselves on this show yeah, it's uh, it's so much better to hear that that way. Um, yeah, instead of like a fake accent. Oh and, uh, my, which I hate. Oh my gosh. And it's like so even like the southern actors who go off and they they flatten their accents, they get that like midwestern affect, <laughs> and then they play a southern role, and all of a sudden they have a fake accent. I'm what like, is what are this? You doing? What does that happen? <laughs> oh, pr- thoughts and prayers on that. Hashtag thoughts and prayers. <laughs> Um, so kind of getting toward, um, we're getting toward like this kind of where the, the, the music will play and it's nice and it's calm and, 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 and hopeful and optimistic. Uh, wh- why do you do the work that you do? And like, what's the overall goal for you in doing this work? Uh, I thought you were going to ask me to sing. I was getting ready to warm up, uh, but <laughs> no, we no. I'd hate for your your subscriptions to drop. <laughs> but I I do this work because it feels important and being yeah. and I love the work and I love the people and I love I love talking about the South in uplifting ways, particularly not talking about the queer and trans South and know that had I had access to that, my life might be significantly different when I was younger. If I had had that kind of claim to history and and just this ability to to take space and to know who I am, to know where I came from in in a different way than I did growing up would have been really important. I love empowering young folks and then respecting older folks and seeing them like recognize that like oh I am acknowledging this movement that you did and honestly having been in higher ed for so long there's so much there's so much great things that happen in higher ed and so much really tedious silly bogging down that happens and this feels so freeing because not everything we do feels important and big of course there are a lot of bookkeeping things and those sorts of things but it feels it feels good. Like we are contributing, like the work that we are doing in some way is literally changing history. Absolutely. And so I think, you know, we all want some sort of legacy. And while I may not be recorded in there as a historical person, I will have had a hand in so many things that do become a part of our historical record. And for me, that's, I don't know, that's a really uplifting, amazing thing to get to do every day. 
for yeah. work. Yeah. Can't you hear Sarah McLaughlin in the background right now? Like, is she kissing like one of those injured puppies, like a <laughs> puppy mill dog? Is she kissing it? And, and then, it, or and then there's all of a sudden like a random Liz Fair. We're gonna yeah. go way back. <laughs> Do you even know what Liz Fair is? Don't, no, but it sounds very, very niche. Okay, more homework. Look up Liz Fair. It was a, it was a very like feminist lesbian. Not really, but '90s. Oh, Lilith Fair. Oh, Liz Fair's the actor. No, oh. the singer. The singer. Shit. Lilith Fair. Yeah, Jesus yeah, I know Christ. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lilith Fair. Now I gotta, yeah, I definitely gotta go look, look that up. Uh, okay. For I'm, everybody, like, don't come for me that I didn't know who Liz Fair was uh, and confuse it with Lilith Fair. It's I mean, been a long day. Come okay, on. That's it's been a long day. Those are very similar sounding things. Like, whatever. Yeah, like, how dare an event and a person have a similar name? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Why are there multiple L words? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, so, yeah, we kind of had a very robust conversation. We can go on and on and on. I'm pretty sure there's going to be a part two, three, and four at some point. Because um, <laughs> you guys are doing so much work, and I, I want to definitely share out with the rest of the folks. Um, but I tend to continue this very mushy part of the conversation. I always end the conversation about uh, asking folks what their hope for Alabama is. Um, so <laughs> what is your hope for Alabama? Oh my gosh, what a heavy, heavy question. <laughs> um, I hope that the because I, I don't think that my hope really is extending to bigger political issues right now. I'm feeling a little washed out on that, a little sure. overburdened with that right yeah. now. But I hope that queer and trans folks who are our primary reason, mm-hmm. right, we do this for queer and trans people in the South, uh, can find some measure of connection and empowerment in this work and can start leaning more into our moments of joy and sense of pride in who we are and where where we've come and what we've done collectively and what people still continue to do and that the younger folks who are super queer and weird and amazing and awesome will we'll look to that to the past as both like a hallmark of how much things have gotten better but also seeing themselves as active participants in history and changing things and that knowing that they can do these things that will cumulatively make big differences down the road and so that's really what I want to see is like this legacy of the past to the future. And I hope that we can kind of bridge that a little bit um, in the work that we do. Well, I can definitely attest to the fact that you're doing it. I think it's going to work out. That's a very tangible hope. Um, thank you for sharing that. I hope other people <laughs> tap into it too. Um, is there anything else you want to share with the people of the world? <laughs> um, no, but I will go and Google my 90s references before we talk again. I'll make sure that I get that stamp hat. <laughs> but no, people can go find us on <clears throat> invisiblehistory.org. We're Invisible Histories Project on Facebook and Instagram. And we are IHP South on Twitter. We are kind of baby working on a TikTok, but don't. Don't hold your breath on it. We thinking about it. We old folks. Like I can't, I can't get into that. I don't even know how it works. But maybe one day. Yeah. Maybe one day. Yes, folks. Please definitely follow them. That you have, you have all their handles. Um, check them out and um, follow along. They have they post 
pretty well, like way more than we do, I feel like. And they always have cool stuff, different artifacts, um, sometimes video clips of historical things happening in the queer community in Alabama. A lot of cool stuff across their social media platforms. So check them out and also check out their website. And uh, again, Megan, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. All right. So yeah, thank you listener for listening to the second episode of the second season of the Higher Ground Society podcast. The music that was used in this episode was created by none other than Jasmine Garfield of Artistic Intelligence Media there in Birmingham, Alabama. Also, once again, I'd like to give a shout out to the Alabama Humanities Alliance for supporting this podcast this season. We really enjoy being in community with them. Until next time, take care.